0: You didn't see the man come flying out of the sky from the clouds. It was him with his cape flapping. In the... It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. It's the Popcorn Digest.
1: Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time man of steel, Super Andrew Raphael. I'm made of steel. (laughs) Sheffield steel. (laughs) (laughs) And we're pointing to the skies and asking, is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is that Richard Pryor? As we're watching the comedian star in Superman 3, co-starring Christopher Reeve as supporting character, Superman. (laughs) This latest adventure sees our Man of Steel take on the thrilling and dangerous world of computer programming. But is this soaring sequel a super hit or just super shit? Find out after the trailer.
0: when it's time for adventure. It's time for Superman. Alexander Salkine presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor in Superman 3. This time, Richard Pryor has come to Metropolis. Oh, I'm sorry. And he's got something to sell. (laughs) He's the best con man and the world's greatest computer genius. Let me tell you something. I can't ski. But then he falls. Ah! Ah! For a scheme to turn the ultimate computer into the ultimate weapon. Well, what will it do for me? It would do anything you tell me to tell it to do. A machine so powerful.
1: Baby! It's daddy!
0: It can control the earth. Change the weather. You now something. You're a genius and reprogram Superman.
1: But you never get here.
0: Well, I hope you don't expect me to save you, because I don't do that anymore. But only the man who pulled the switch on Superman
1: Oh, uh, see, I'm not with
0: them, Superman. you could gonna fool me, mister. can pull the plug on Super Machine. You're going to go down in history as the man who killed Superman. Superman 3. Uh, watch the trees. Whoa! This time, ...is going to be the best time of all.
1: If you liked the worst parts of Superman 2, then you're going to love Richard Lester's Superman 3, a superhero sequel lacking the action, grandeur, comedy, emotional resonance and charm of the previous films in the series. But hey, it does at least feature Richard Pryor on enough cocaine to put Escobar out of business. (laughs) If Superman made us believe a man can fly, then Superman 3 will make us believe that same man can also be a bit of a dick. It's quite possibly the worst thing that has ever happened to Christopher Reeve, and I downright refuse to take any notes on that quote. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, who knows if that last line will make it into the final Uh... edit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Andy, Superman three, Superman I. What? <laughs> uh, it reminds me of that joke. Um, what do you call a fish with three eyes? A fish. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh no!
1: <laughs> We're starting to
2: mean to get. That's the level of humor in this film, anyway. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, really? that is. The, that's what Richard Pryor brings to
1: this film. Yeah. This is what you get Richard Pryor for. So Andy. Superman 3, what is
2: your background with this masterpiece of a movie? You know, I don't think I've seen this all the way through since I was a little kid. I think all the Superman movies used to be shown on television a lot. I think particularly on ITV. I definitely saw all four of the Superman films when I was like five Mm -hmm. or six on the television. And I don't think I've seen Superman 3 in its entirety ever since. I've definitely watched the beginning a few times and the end and bits in the middle, but I've never watched it all the way through since then, so it's almost like having a fresh watch, because I've always skipped this one. (laughs) I'm the same as you.
1: I was watching this thinking the same thing, which is, I've definitely seen some of this film over the years. I've gone back and watched that. the obvious famous scene of the villain being turned into a computer monster thing which is one of those terrifying moments from everyone's childhood yeah i've gone back over the years and looked at different parts of this and it's been on tv and i've might have thrown it on at you know the halfway point but i've never really sat down and watched this film all the way through like actively since i was a kid so this was like watching it with fresh eyes (laughs) (laughs) just
2: as the film deserves yeah i don't know why but i always skip this one, and I've watched Superman 1 and 2 and Superman 4 many times. Yeah, it's weird. I think I've seen Superman 4 more times than this one. Yeah. It's that Jaws 3
1: effect, like how I've seen Jaws 1 and 2 and Jaws The Revenge so many times, but not Jaws 3.
2: (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I'm very surprised that this, being a, a third film released in 1983 wasn't superman 3d yes yeah really yeah because that was a thing at that time the 82 to 83 if you had a third film in your franchise it was going to be in 3d of so, course and
1: i don't think that was above the
2: sulkins either no, really no i'm very surprised that didn't happen i think they just wanted to save money at the end of the day <laughs> yeah i think so but yeah, we have covered Superman
1: on the podcast before. We did an episode on Superman 4, the quiche for piss. Mm. I think we uh, ended up calling it by the end of the yeah. episode. <laughs> so yeah, it's good to come back around to this series and uh, and have a look at another film, give it another go. But just to say where I'm at with this series, I think that Superman 1 is half a masterpiece and half a pretty good film yeah i think that first half of it is just perfection like the emotional core that growing up of superman into going to metropolis and becoming clark kent the reporter that whole section of the film is brilliant and it's beautifully scored superman 2 is pretty good as well it's obviously got its weaker moments and we'll go into what those moments are later on. Yeah. But The Richard Donner cut is far superior in my opinion even with all of the things involved such as it including rehearsal takes for yeah. some of the footage and that you can you can see what the intention was and what And what the same there. ending. <laughs> yeah, and the same ending. Same yeah. ending as one, <laughs> which Yeah. But I think it uses the ending correctly like
2: it's a bit of a It's a bit of a gag. It does harm the film because you can't watch it in sequence with one. It does, Does yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the Donner is far superior, like way superior. In fact, I don't remember the last time I saw the the Leicester Cut. It might have been at college that I saw it. Yeah. Since the Donner Cut came out,
1: I've not watched the Leicester Cut of the film. But it always felt like an odd film, like it was a film that was at odds with itself.
2: Yeah. It's a bit of a Frankenstein's monster, isn't it, that one? Yeah,
1: Exactly. And then that brings us to Superman 3. And like you say, my experience with this is I I haven't seen it since I was a kid, really. And I came to that realisation while I was watching it. And where are you coming at this film from like as a Superman fan? What's your your opinion
2: of the series? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a series of uh, diminishing returns. At least he brought it back with Man of Steel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think this is a series that's really found its feet. Since the first movie. (laughs) Yes, exactly. uh, Since the 1978 movie. Every single film that's come out since, like the ingredients have been slightly off or completely wrong. So I have hoped that despite all the uh, horrible negativity that's going on online at the moment, that James Gunn can uh, maybe make a Superman film that's worthy. Because despite having superhero fatigue, he is one of the superheroes that I'm most anticipating a good film from because... One, yeah, there haven't been that many. A lot of them have been misfires. And two, I think just because he's a, a very prominent DC hero, and I generally tend to go towards the DC characters mm-hmm. more than Marvel, that it's something that I think still has, there's something still untapped there because yeah. this film series, the Christopher Ree films are so far back. None of the other films have surpassed It's not like Batman where you had the Dark Knight trilogy or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Those early Superman films are still the gold standard for Superman. So definitely very, very, very casual fan. Even when we went to see Man of Steel, I was rooting for that to be a good adaptation.
1: We were rooting hard for that to be a film.
2: (laughs) For it to be a film?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That last trailer that they released for it was the best Superman film that has come out since Superman. Yeah. The one that had the Hans Zimmer theme and it felt like rousing and emotional and, you know, it got your blood pumping and I was like, oh, God, this is going to be great. And to be honest, I do have the opinion with Man of Steel that it's um, it's got some good ideas and it's got some good intentions, but it's just the way that it devolves into its third act is the series never recovered from that really properly. Yeah.
2: And for me that the town is off from the start. Yes. Yeah. Trying to ground Superman into gritty reality is never going to work. It's just not that kind of thing. So that's why I'm hopeful with the James Gunn film, is because his films are not grounded in reality. You, You only have to watch The Suicide Squad to see that. But here's the big question. Yeah. Will James Gunn's Superman film include
1: the villain being encased in a giant dildo? (laughs) because i think that's something that Zack snyder's film will will always have over james yeah
2: yeah but yeah that last act in uh, man of steel is just it's a bit tone deaf
1: (laughs) people keep trying online to redeem it and saying it's uh it's trying at this and it's trying at that and it's doing this and doing that but it misses the core and the heart of what superman is yeah something that superman 3 captured so
2: perfectly So yeah, that's where I'm at with it. And uh, again, we watched Superman 4 quite a while back now. It was like 2016 when we did that review. And I don't think I've gone back that much since. I think I've seen maybe Superman 1 again since then. But yeah, it's not a series I go back to a lot. But Mm -hmm. it is something that I have a certain amount of fondness for. And again, those first two films work to a pretty good extent, despite the uh, issues with the second film. And it's one of those things where... I wish he'd just been able to f- finish his vision yeah, on that yeah. film. Like Superman 3 is pretty much the fallout from all that stuff because, mm-hmm. as we've mentioned before, Superman 1 and T were made together as one big film, a very expensive film. I think the budget adds up to about $109 million in in... 1977 which is yes a lot of money i even calculated the budget for superman 3 which is a lot less but it still ended up being about 125 million in today's money so right yes so there we go those first two films combined now would be like 350 million dollars or something like that which is yeah it was a big a big risk but um the aftermath of that is just weird the fact that they fired the guy that saved their movie
1: Yes, exactly, yeah.
2: And Superman 3, I think, represents what you could have seen had Richard Donner not been hired.
1: That's how it feels to me. Yeah. This one feels most like a sulken movie. Yeah. In that when you look at the other films that they have made, you look at Supergirl as well, and you look at Santa Claus the movie, they all have that kind of chaotic very loose story more of a collection of is there a story <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> no yeah. story no plot yeah no story no plot lots of sketches comedy yeah and not always great but let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks that seems to be their thing and so you have richard Donner coming in and saying let's make an emotional movie about a living god amongst mere mortals kind of thing trying to fit in as written by the man who wrote The Godfather, Mario Puzo. I can see why there was that clash of heads, but I don't think they ever
2: realized what they had in their hands. No. I think they were more bothered by, where's my Telly savallis sketch gone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: And this one feels like what we would have had from the start had things gone completely their way from the beginning. Yeah. Just no plot, just a
2: series of happenings. <laughs> Yeah. And that's the weird, they're so, um, I haven't seen that documentary for a long time, but I remember them saying they're so still blind to the fact of their own shortcomings. and, And they didn't have any appreciation for what Donna did, that when this film did what it did, they just took it as audiences were tired of Superman. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah and if Superman 1 had been made in this style there's absolutely no way that they would have made much money on it it would have been a no. huge failure absolutely no doubt in my mind that that would have happened yeah because really this film the money that this film made probably would have just been made off the back of one Richard Pryor and any goodwill that was carried over from the second film because um yeah I watched the trailer for this uh film just before we started because often we don't and we sometimes lose that context because quite a lot of what happens to some films can be revealed in a trailer so Mm -hmm.
1: you kind of get an idea of how much the studio had in the film
2: yeah i mean it's a very old school trailer where it's narrated by film trailer guy and it shows you the whole film in three minutes from start (laughs) to finish (laughs) in a world where one man is more cocaine than human being And very interestingly, I think Richard Pryor takes up about 80% of the trailer of the world's cocaine. And Christopher Reeve, yeah. And Christopher (laughs) Reeve takes up about the other 20%. So that tells you all you need to know. But apparently, that trailer played in front of Return of the Jedi, which I think was released a couple of months earlier. Quite a big year for films in 1983. It's a pretty stacked top 10 as well when we get into that later. Yeah, and it was one of the films the anticipated films of that year so somebody wrote in the comments that said uh, oh boy did it disappoint <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the production of this film just seems very sal kind i.e. very messy yes this film was it was announced a few months before the release of superman 2 because although those films were filmed back to back there was a little bit of a delay it was released in australia in December 1980, and then it wasn't released in the US and the UK until spring-summer 1981. So yeah, there's oh, that's a three-year gap. UK was April 1981, and US was June 1981. <laughs> that is shocking,
1: really, yeah. for a film of this type. They're giving it the old festival treatment, We're doing a, uh, a staggered release and uh, building
2: up to Sundance. Yeah, so even though... <laughs> You know, the majority of Superman 2 was made in 1977, didn't come out till 81, and actually there's only a two-year gap in between the release of 2 and 3. It had been announced in the month before Superman 2 came out, and I'm pretty sure at the end of Superman 2, they even advertise that there's going to be a Superman 3 in the end credits. Superman will return. In Superman 3! <laughs> <laughs> His greatest adventure yet! <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. The development of this is very messy because it overlaps with the stuff that Richard Donner was planning before he was ousted. He'd been planning at least two more Superman films that he intended Tom Mankiewicz to direct. You know, he may have directed them himself if he'd been allowed. You don't know, because we had that quote from when we discussed Superman previous time where he could have been making Superman films forever. Yeah. The villain for this film was... Brainiac from the start. There are a couple of other additions, Like, um, I can't even pronounce it. Mr. Mix-a-plick. I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> that. What? Mr. Mix-a-plick.
1: Is this some kind of, like, Eastern European war criminal?
2: <laughs> Apparently he's called Mixie for short. But, um oh, yeah, okay, he's a yeah. real Superman villain created by Siegel and Shuster. Created in 1944.
1: I mean, I believe you. I mean, Superman has had some pretty... Terrible foes over the years as well. Apparently Dudley
2: Moore was being lined up to play that role. Of course he was. He's supposed to be like a little sort of pixie of a man. It looks like a purple leprechaun to be honest. It would have been like
1: that thing in the Flintstones. When they um, brought in the, the weird alien that only Fred Flintstone could see. <laughs> I forgot what it's called but that sounds
2: just crazy. They were going to try and incorporate Supergirl into it at some point.
1: Which I think is a good... You know, that would have been decent enough as well if you wanted to build out this universe. Yeah. You could certainly introduce Supergirl. It feels weird that Supergirl's its
2: own separate thing. There was going to be Lana Lang in there as well. Time travel to the Middle Ages, apparently. Okay. <laughs> it was going to be a little bit crazy. Yeah. But I think if anyone could have pulled that off, it would have been Richard Donner, so...
1: I mean, he had this time travel to the Middle Ages thing... Didn't he do that film with Paul Walker where they travel back to the Middle Ages, the time travelers? Oh yeah, was it? Is it Timeline? Is that what it's Timeline? Was it? I think that was it. Yeah, and it was like this huge flop. Yes, Timeline. Yeah, and that was a Richard Donner film, so that must have been rattling about in his head for a while as well. This whole idea of you know the modern epitome of man meeting a Middle Ages
2: villain. Yeah. So because of the nature of Brainiac, the film was always going to involve computers at some point. But it seems in the fallout that the Soul Kinds were getting, even at this point, getting cold feet about the series. I mean, I feel like they've had cold feet from the series from the beginning. They were never in the headspace to make a Superman film. They were never really that interested in Superman as a character, I don't think. Uh, And this film really shows that.
1: It's a good job that they sold the rights off in the end so it could could arrive to the hands of somebody (laughs) that really knew what they could do with Superman,
2: John Peters. Well, at this point they considered telling it to Dino De Laurentiis, which I'm not sure would have been a better decision.
1: <laughs> you know what? To be honest, I would have taken Dino De Laurentiis as Superman because if anything, it would have been wild. Yeah.
2: Why and not do Superman? Why? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they obviously eventually didn't. And in terms of casting, again, that's messy and very unclear. There's a lot of reports about... Gene Hackman and Margot Kidder not wanting to come back because of how Richard Donner was treated, but there's conflicting cases. Apparently, Gene Hackman was just busy. I mean, he didn't seem to have that problem with Superman Four. No, and the thing with Margot Kidder was it was either a punishment or the South kinds were just done with Lois Lane. I, I, it's just again very messy, unclear. We'll never really get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And the same goes for Christopher Reeve, because he'd also threatened not to return, apparently. And the Salkines did try and get other actors to play Superman, including John Travolta, Jeff Bridges, and Kurt Russell, who all turned them down.
1: You know, it's weird that you mentioned that as well. I think of those actors back then. Yeah. And they are great actors, and John Travolta. um, but no they are and it says everything about how christopher reeve came to epitomize this role that even now when people are mentioned as superman that is the image that i side them up against in my mind is of christopher reeve and they live or die by that and even those actors they're great actors in their own right they're probably better actors than christopher reeve was but they don't match up to the role as he defined it
2: yeah but yeah this probably matches up to the christopher reeve we've been talking about in superman 4 is that he um threatened not to return and assumed the film would have been cancelled had he not come back but apparently they cast a an actor called tony danza as superman oh tony danza yeah, yeah and he quickly got intimidated And relented and came back. But I think he regretted it at the end of the day. Because, yeah, apparently, he... uh, Like a lot of people on this film, they all hated the script. So, (laughs) yeah, I think the whole film boils down to this. You've got the script written by the Newmans, who were the guys that originally wrote the first Superman as a really goofy comedy. So they actually have a chance to make Superman a really goofy comedy. And then completely separate to this, which derails the whole film, is that on an episode of Johnny Carson, Richard Pryor commented on how much he enjoyed watching Superman 2. It is one of the most
1: coked up episodes of the Johnny Carson show. Yeah. And this is a time when coke is like rife. It's rampant through the industry. I mean, God, I could only wish I was there. But <laughs> It is rampant through the, through the industry. And still, Richard Pryor somehow manages to stand out as a man. He would say, he's probably had too much coke. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 and maybe the Silicones had had too much coke as well, because they were like, oh, yeah. he likes Superman. Get him in the film. In fact, <laughs> build the whole film around him. Yeah, And it seems that way, because Richard Lester was very reluctant to return to the series... But the only reason he returned in the end was because he was very interested in working with Richard Pryor, which is why this film is such a it's basically just a Richard Pryor film with a bit of Superman tacked on. Everything revolves around him.
1: It does. I mean, even the cold open of the film, like you are yep. coming to the cinema to watch Superman three. Superman 3, the title, you know, his name's in the title. It is everything about the film. And the cold open is open on the welfare office. Richard Pryor is begging for a welfare check (laughs) in one of the most depressing openings for a Superman film ever. And he must take up, at least, I would say, for the first hour and a bit, he must take up what is essentially about 70% of the film, his antics. And Superman does come into it a little bit more towards the end, but it does feel like too little, too late for it to become his film again. Richard Pryor is very much front and center on this, and it feels like he is. It sounds like one of those funny premises where we're following a character that's just happened to fall into a Superman movie. Yeah. I could see them doing it now with Melissa McCarthy or something. Melissa McCarthy's just a, a regular schmo <laughs> who happens to find herself at the center of the superhero's universe but the superhero is this kind of like one that they've just it's like non-brand superhero (laughs) they've just it's superman in every way but we can't call it superman it's weird that they've managed to do it with this and actually it is a superman film it's like if that jaws three people zero would have been made
2: yeah it's also like if if it was a television series it would be one of those main cast light episodes where it would focus on a on a guest star (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the main cast would make an appearance at the end. We're going to save some money on the special effects in this one. It says everything when Clark Kent appears on screen during the opening titles. There's no fanfare. He literally just comes on from the side. Yeah. Like any other extra in this opening title sequence. Yeah, he's such an afterthought in this film.
1: Yeah. I mean, let's start talking about the film because we're blending the uh, context as we go along as well anyway. But straight from that opening... Things are wrong. Yeah. It feels off. It feels wrong. There's no fanfare. The music is so far below par as to where it should be. They don't seem to be making any use of John Williams' original score other than like the odd beat every now and again. And it also has no sense of scale, no sense of grandeur is the word that I keep on losing with this and even the way that the titles are presented like those titles are iconic The flying through space as the titles um, come towards us everybody knows what that looks like and in this they kind of appear over the screen and make the screen look hazy in a way that yeah. made me feel like i was watching the film through conjunctivitis You know, I saw the last Harry Potter film while I had this terrible case of conjunctivitis or as Americans call it, pink eye. And that was my experience of watching the last Harry Potter film (laughs) was as this opening appears, it was like half the screen was blurry, (laughs) but I could see the odd face every now and again. So that's what it goes from. It goes from brilliant space opera type flying through the universe to... I feel I'm sick
2: watching this film. (laughs) I feel like this has to be one of the most bizarre opening title sequences of all time in a mainstream film. Yeah, it is. In the first 10 minutes, the film definitely sets out its stall. Uh, (laughs) It does. It tells you. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have been like watching this film cold on release after having seen Superman 1 and 2 Yeah, and be presented with that opening Richard Pryor scene, followed by this rather long slapstick sequence. Oh, so long. With the weird space titles over it like they weren't meant to be together. Yeah, yeah. They, they clearly weren't. I know in some TV edits there is a, an alternative space version of the title sequence that they use, which, to say the film doesn't work is an understatement, but <laughs> th- this is definitely one of the worst parts of the film and it's so up front and center that it's kind of just going to turn you off within minutes yes absolutely and it's not even good slapstick either it's really shit slapstick it's like the lowest common denominator crap
1: yeah i wrote in my notes as well that we have that moment of um superman looking for a place to change because all the phone booths had fallen over so he he jumps into a photo booth and then jumps back out again. So he jumps in as Clark Kent, jumps back out again as Superman. And then the photos come out, and the kid picks him up and he sees an image of, like, several images of Clark Kent morphing into Superman. I was like, oh, wouldn't it have been great if one of them would have been, like, mid changing of his pants and his, like, ball was hanging out of his trousers or something like that? <laughs> you know? And he's <laughs> just like, yeah, I'll just
2: rip that one off and leave the kid with the ball sack one. Yeah. His man of steel was <laughs> flopping out. Uh- <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, it tells you everything. I think it's rather symbolic that when you actually get the title of Superman 3, it's the shot of where all the telephone boxes are knocked over. Yes, yeah. It tells you everything, really, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, something that's become kind of iconic for Superman,
1: the telephone box, the place where he changes from Clark Kent into Superman. They're out of action. <laughs> yeah, they're out of action. <laughs> Not to be seen. they. <laughs> it's perfectly symbolic of the car crash that this film
2: is yeah i mean god the film is wishy-washy and unstructured that there were even parts of the film where i was expecting things to happen and they didn't i knew that lois lane wasn't in the film and that she was basically on holiday but i thought that the the whole lottery subplot was that she was going to be the one with the winning number yeah and the fact that that didn't happen and she just randomly went to Bermuda is even worse than just her winning. The, yeah. like They could even do that well. No, and
1: the lottery thing doesn't even really come back in a major way. No. It keeps on coming back, but it's not like there's anything interesting or terribly funny to mine out of that, but they, they keep trying.
2: But I feel even at a lowest common denominator level, you could have made something of that and still... You could still link it in, yeah. Well, what could have happened is that Lois could have won... The ticket and gone down to South America, and she could have been caught up in that hurricane, and yes. Superman could have saved her, and she would have not been prominent in the film, but would have had at least something to do in the film.
1: Yeah, and you still have a big Lois Lane being saved by Superman yeah. moment. Simple, <laughs> like yeah, it is. It it's just staring works, you yeah. in the
2: face. As shit as the script is, you could have made something more out of it. Yeah, because I have to say this, despite it still being roughly on par. Visual and effects wise, with the first two Superman films, I think script, story, and character wise, it might actually be weaker than Quest for Peace.
1: It's what I've actually written in my notes. Yeah. I think it's weaker as a Superman film yeah. than the Quest for Peace. I think the Quest for Peace hits still a few of the beats of what a Superman. It's striving to be a Superman film. It just didn't add and the money. Falling very, 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 very short. Yeah, but this one is actively sabotaging itself as a Superman film. Yeah. And as, again, the Salkinds, they they have this allergy to story. And so does <laughs> Richard Lester, actually. Um, like, his films are very... If we look up the films that made him famous, you know, Hard Day's Night, that is very loose on story and plot and more just about a series of sketches, including The Beatles. It's actually, like, 30 minutes before we even get A sense of who the villain is or where this film's moving towards. The first 30 minutes are about Clark Kent returning back to Smallville and Richard Pryor getting a job as a computer programmer and finding out that somehow he's a genius at coding for no reason. Like it's not that's not something that you accidentally find out you're a genius in. Yeah. Like having never touched a computer fingertips at the keyboard he's like i don't know what i'm doing but it's that's just me doing a voice i'm not doing richard Pryor. <laughs> i would never i would never but he's just like, i don't know what i'm doing i'm just typing in the keys and it's all working i don't get it <laughs> no and i guess the legacy of this film from that first 30 minutes the legacy of this film is that it becomes a major plot point in the film office space
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. where the characters, without realizing it, accidentally rip off this film in order to create a um a scheme to make the money at work. Which is brilliant. It's brilliant that revelation.
2: Oh, apparently they got the idea from watching this film.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they
2: don't realise it until halfway through the film that they got it from watching Superman three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the film has a a legacy in how it portrays villains, it's the fact that The Ross Webster character, the um, Robert Vaughn character... Robert Vaughn, yeah. ...being a wealthy industrialist villain, when they came to rejig the character of Lex Luthor in the mid-80s, I think they took a lot of inspiration from how he's portrayed in Superman 3, the villain, and moulded him in that image. So the Lex Luthor, before that, was more mad scientist... And then in the mid eighties became more of a a wealthy businessman type figure. And if that's the legacy that Superman 3 has on Superman as a whole, that's pretty much it.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. I understand that impetus as well to make the the businessman the baddie in the eighties because Wall Street, let's have a look at that. You know, this became a period of time where there was a lot of distrust in the idea of um Wall Street brokers and businessmen having our best interest at heart. This was when that kind of facade fell through. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of understand wanting to turn Lex Luthor into that. But this just feels like it was a role written for Lex Luthor. Yeah. Yeah. Like for Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman said no. Yeah. And it's like, will we change anything? Yeah, just the name. Just change the (laughs) name. Everything else the same, including the characters that he associates himself with. Yeah. You know, you have like one straight man and one goofy one. You know, you have the two women, his sister, which is like the straight man of the group. And then you have the the bimbo, who's actually not a bimbo by the end of it. But yeah, it it just feels like copy and paste, change the names, that kind of job.
2: Yeah. But at least we have Richard Pryor. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, at least he got paid $5 million for doing this film. He got a contract with Columbia after this film. So it didn't do his career any damage but god i mean if 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 there's anyone who's off piste in this film it's got to be him jesus yeah yeah definitely too much coke
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) there are many scenes in this film where cocaine came to mind specifically as well i wrote in my notes that i'm sure that Richard Pryor received his fee in cocaine.
2: <laughs> yeah. Or he just spent it on cocaine.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's a shot of Superman lifting like the top of the uh, the lake up to go and put it over the acid factory. Yeah. And there's a shot of him like in the air with this massive huge amount of white solid rock flying through the air. And it just looked like cocaine. I was like that's how they must have delivered Richard Pryor's fee for this film. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say I love Richard Pryor like uh, seen a stand up yeah you know certainly dated now but Richard Pryor as a comedian when I was a kid was like everything and I loved his work with Gene Wilder and um, I think I saw this film through a love of Richard Pryor at the time as well when I was younger and being very disappointed by that yeah (laughs) but even as a Richard Pryor film, it's just not very good or funny. No. And he has no one to bounce off because he's he doesn't really link up with the villains until the halfway point. And still, he finds himself just on his own ad-libbing for his life throughout. He's got no one to bounce off against. It feels like they've missed the point of, well, if you're going to go down this route of having Richard Pryor in the film... Why not have him interact with Superman a lot more? Yeah. Why yeah. why not have him be integral to Superman's story? In the end, we just end up with like a lot of disjointed ad-libbing. I mean, I've got some of it written down here. Just <laughs> one of the things that he says earlier on as well was um the boss wants to see me? I know it's my suggestion for the girls' volleyball uniforms. <laughs> it's like stuff like that. It's like there's nothing funny there. Unless he would have ended it with like his suggestion was assless chaps or something. <laughs> when he's talking to Brad the sheriff, and he um he's trying to get worm his way into the police office and he says something like, ah, oh, he's talking about the boss and he says, oh, He's gonna hang our butts against a wall. I've never heard that saying before. <laughs> 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 what kind of boss are you working for sir and then we have that scene with Robert Vaughn and the two ladies where Richard Pryor recounts the heroics of Superman and it's it, this is the scene that they've been building towards this goes back to that Johnny Carson's interview this is supposed to be the pinnacle piece you know him recreating what he did on the Johnny Carson show
2: Yeah,
1: and There's just nothing funny there. I want to say, oh, he bounces around, but he doesn't even do that. He's a little bit animated, for sure, but there are no jokes. There's nothing to sit there and saying, oh, we've caught lightning in a bottle here, you know, or anything like that, which is what it needed to be if this is what you were doing with this film. You needed to catch lightning in a bottle. You needed to play to Richard Pryce's best strengths. Yeah. In the end, it doesn't even work on
2: that level. No. I mean, (laughs) watching the film with... Jess last night, she had no prior knowledge of Richard Pryor. And when I mentioned to her that this is one of the best stand-up comics of all time, she was like, "All right. (laughs) 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 I'll take your word for it. Yeah, if you get somebody watching this cold and you say that, it's like, nah. Yeah. His shtick ain't working. Everything is so off-piste. And because the film is so heavily built around that, it's just it's an almost complete failure Mm -hmm. it's just one of those situations where you just have to ask yourself what were they thinking yes what were they thinking absolute madness yeah
1: i mean i'll go on record as well and say in a shocking revelation i've only seen a handful of his films but i'm not a richard lester fan i really like a hard day's night i studied it when i was in college yeah And it's a lot of fun and there are a lot of fun stories behind that film and working with the Beatles what it must have been like back then but other than that even Help I'm not really like big on.
2: I've seen the Three Musketeers but I've not seen the sequel. And then the third one that no one will recount. No. <laughs> yeah. I tell you who isn't a uh, Richard Lester fan? And that'll be Rory Kinnear.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: Oh, <laughs> Yeah, he will not be a Richard Lester fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, Richard Lester is like, he went a bit John Landis for a while, didn't he? Yes, so he did. If you're interested in that, do your own research, audience. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's well worth looking into. Yeah. The funny thing is, like, you can't even really talk about many of the Superman moments because there aren't many... You've got the yeah. chemical factory, him being an asshole for about half an hour.
1: <laughs> yeah, which my takeaway from the chemical factory is that if you are a man trying to hide from a rampant fire, perhaps the place that you don't hide in is a room that is marked as the acid room. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about the guy that's like looking after all of the acid, making sure that it doesn't blow up and become a toxic gas cloud of toxic acid gas and there's this hut outside there's just this random like almost cardboard structure that just has the sign acid room on the front of it yeah and when they open the door a man who's like engulfed in flames comes bursting out and not we don't see Superman rescue him or anything like that it just cuts away (laughs) it just cuts completely away for all we know that guy is just he's a goner Superman took one look at him and went nah he's a write off it's too far gone (laughs) yeah nothing I can do here see ya I can't turn back time (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't I really have an emotional connection to you, so yeah. I'm not going to do the old, the world thing. That only happens once. Maybe twice,
2: depending on, yeah. on the way you look at it. Uh, and there's no way that ice sheet will put out that fire. It will get <laughs> vaporised before it even hit the ground. Of course it would. <laughs> but it makes me... Uh, <laughs> that whole like spinning back time thing,
1: it does make me think that everybody who Superman doesn't manage to save from that point onwards, they must be going... What a prick. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, you, you'll turn back time for your girlfriend, won't you? But not for Joe Bloggs down the road, you know, yes. with his family of crying kids down there. Oh, no, no, it just, I, I only do it the once. Yeah, I bet you would, you prick.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is also yeah. the testament to how much of an afterthought everything is. You have um, Jimmy Olsen in that sequence, being a stupid photographer. But once he has his accident and then gets wheeled off, you never see him again the rest of the film. No.
1: To be fair, the way that he's used in this film, it did make me suddenly think, you know what? I'm okay with him getting his brains blown out in Batman versus Superman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, He probably deserved it. Talking about the comedy, the weird comedy that's on display, there are some weird sex things in this film as well. Yeah, <laughs> One of them is entirely unintentional when it cuts to Jimmy Olsen and Superman on the coach driving into Smallville, it cuts into Jimmy Olsen saying, but my Uncle Al on my father's side, he won't eat her stuffing. And I just wanted Superman to reply, please, Jimmy, no more of your family's sexual exploits.
2: I can't take it. I mean, I feel like that cut's probably intentional. Yeah, 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 of course. Considering it cuts to a a very close-up magazine shot of Pamela Stevenson's boobs. Um, yeah, B E W B S. I mean, and that random shot of the bulge of the
1: DJ's pants. <laughs> we go to the graduation after this chemical fire. Yeah. And it's like we have all of the establishing shots of like people having fun and getting acquainted with each other. And then there's just this random insert shot of looking between some tech, a gap in between the monitors and we see just it's a close up of the
2: DJ's crotch in his jeans. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few moments of perviness in this film. Yeah, I don't even know where to start with it <laughs> because it's just <laughs> nothing works apart from maybe two things in the whole film. Well, just on that note, because
1: we have been very negative so far, <laughs> and you say there are these two things that you know kind of work for the film. Yeah. Let's talk about the very few positives that this film has. So what does it have, Andy? <laughs> so
2: it has um, Richard Pryor in an oversized cowboy hat. <laughs> Where does that come from? No idea. It's like, <laughs> I feel like that scene is just B-roll. It's They're not even like doing a scene. It's just everyone off the tits. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I would have loved it if like in between every shot of Richard Pryor just, Without there being a thing about it, his hat just slowly gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> you know, yeah. in a very kind of like David Zucker type way. Yeah. I actually think that might be a joke in one of their films. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so by the time we get to the scene, it's just like fucking
2: huge. It <laughs> just takes up the whole room. <laughs> but more seriously, good Superman fighting evil Superman is pretty well done. Yes. Even though it lacks a lot of um, meaning yes the context of it could have been done so much better but the actual execution of the actual fight is pretty good even though you can see the double7 stage very clearly in the background <laughs> very much so yeah and again that little terrifying shot of um what she called my name film. here
1: yeah so we have Annie Ross as Vera
2: yeah her getting turned into that weird computer robot character yeah but again just that moment because they don't really do anything with it after that point, but the actual moment is really quite well done and quite terrifying yeah. still.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I it makes me think that whole scene, the whole setup and the whole like um the force battle that happens there with her using her powers to levitate people, it reminded me very much, including the setting of the end of Attack of the Clones. Like George Lucas had watched it and gone, oh, you know what? Yeah. That's where I'm gonna set my Yoda verse dooku fight. Which is a weird place for George Lucas to take his inspiration. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, to be honest, no, he's had weirder. Yeah. Like I said before, the uh, the trailer for this film was at the front of Return of the Jedi, so he might have been sitting in the theatre going, hey, a lot of that sequence is in the trailer, so he might have just gone, even if he hadn't seen the rest of the film, going, hey, I'll put that in my little notebook. Yeah, Save that for another day. But... I think you've touched upon something that is
1: a very interesting idea for Superman and what the film should have revolved around, which is the idea of Superman confronting a version of himself. And I mean by this, that we have this new kryptonite. I think in the comic books it's Red Kryptonite that does this, or at least the TV show Smallville redefined it as being Red Kryptonite. But we have this type of kryptonite that makes Superman act in a very emotionally conflicted and corrupted way it's the only superman thing in the whole film (laughs) yeah exactly and it's the part of the film where it works and shouldn't the whole film have been about superman confronting the idea that just like humans just like the people he saves he has a darker side to him you know we all have a darker side to ourselves And for him, he can't afford to be human because he's a living God. He's Superman. So this is a part of him that he uses his superpowers to repress and that kind of thing. And then we have this moment where he's corrupted by a kryptonite. And we start to ask the question, is this version of Superman something that's living inside of him? Or is it a kryptonite that's created it? And I like the idea of it being like something that's living inside of him him confronting a part of himself.
2: I uh, hate to stop you Gareth but uh, I am India Salkind <laughs> and uh, we paid 5 million dollars for Richard Pryor so we're just going to go with it. <laughs> okay? Yeah. First hour of the film. We've
1: made a it's
2: in his contract
1: that he has to be in 90% of the first hour yeah. of the film. But of all the things that happened with that, I like that it's this little boy saying um you know it's just a slump but it's the idea of his like the expectations of this little boy is finally the thing that makes him separate from physically these two versions of himself but i think even then they kind of missed a point by making it clark kent versus evil superman because clark kent is the mask that's the thing he puts on yeah that's not the way it should be it should be superman versus superman but like two different versions But the whole thing (laughs) comes to a head in the most shocking way. Like, I would never have expected that this good Superman versus evil Superman battle would have come to a conclusion with um, good Superman besting bad Superman by literally strangling him out of existence. Yeah. There's no like big
2: thing. He literally is David Caradine. Out of existence. Down and dirty. Yeah. <laughs> That's the bit that Zack Snyder liked. Yeah. <laughs> Not since David Carradine has a man been
1: strangled out of existence quite like this. <laughs>
2: oh, no. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. Mwah, mwah. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. The only other sort of long standing influence of this film is I think the um, the evil Superman costume. The colours of it, pretty much every modern Superman suit has those darker maroons and blues. Deeper. Yeah, so in that respect, I quite like the look of the evil Superman costume because it it looks quite stylish. It does. It (laughs) It looks better. And also, I was reading that this is the only film out of the four Christopher Reeve Superman films is where the shade of his hair is slightly different. It's a lot lighter in this film than it is in the other three films. Because apparently he was wearing wigs all throughout. So I think it's probably because they could just change the hair easily between shots. So when he's Clark Kent, it's a wig. And when he's Superman, it's a wig. But for some odd reason, this film, the wigs are slightly lighter shade of brown. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good wig. Good wig work. Is. They spent a lot of the budget on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the
1: ten percent of the budget that was left after they paid for Richard Pryor's drugs, they used on
2: the wig work. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> talking of the boy, like, it's quite unbelievable how the Sal kinds, now that everyone else is gone, how they treat all their female characters. Because yes, oh boy, with the lowest laying character, easily the laziest fridge in mm-hmm. history. And Lana Lang doesn't fare much better because she is not integrated with the plot whatsoever. You could take her out of the film completely and you wouldn't change anything. No, no, exactly. You could keep the boy. (laughs) Even the (laughs) fact that she doesn't take part in the third act whatsoever. No, she's not involved in the action whatsoever. She's stuck in the subway from Pelham 123. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And again, yeah, you've got the two sort of villain sidekick characters, one of which is... Very heavily sexualized.
1: Yes, yeah.
2: And the fact that it was Pamela Stevenson, I'm kind of like not quite sure why she uh, would agree to do the film
1: considering
2: Mm -hmm. what she'd just come off. I think that's the thing that astounds me. All these weird decisions and all this really bizarre stuff going all the way throughout the film. And Mm -hmm. you have to consider that Budget-wise, this was the Avatar Marvel movie of its day. Yes, yeah. And we're not even talking about the fact that, oh, MODOK looks a little bit goofy in Ant-Man Quantumania. No, no, no. It's like if you had a Marvel film and it was based around Chris Rock doing his thing for 90% of the time.
1: Yeah, it's like if they made like the last Captain America film about... like you say about another like black comedian like as you say chris rock or someone like that and then had captain america in a minor supporting role kevin hart (laughs) yeah kevin hart there we go kevin Hart. yeah but yeah it is such a strange thing to do you've built a fan base over two films that are expecting and wanting to come to see a superman film and then to turn it out this way it feels like you're I mean, this is what this film does. It undoes everything that the Richie Donner films, and even the second film in its current film, what they made with those, the world they built, it undoes brick by brick. Actually, not even brick by brick, with a bulldozer. Yeah. It just kind of barrels through the world that they've built up there. And in a way, you could say that the series has been floundering ever since.
2: Yeah, it's had an identity crisis. It's strange that just people don't know how to do Superman. It's interesting like how much of a different kind of landscape it was, but you're talking about a film where the producers are not really interested in the comic book parts of the film. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And also, yeah, they've cut the film story-wise down to such bare bones that none of it actually makes any sense because I think at some point the character of Gus Gorman was supposed to be Brainiac or Brainiac in Disguised or under the influence of Brainiac. It might have worked in some way if you'd had a maybe a Brainiac cameo at the end and it revealed that Gus was being controlled or influenced by Brainiac, which is yeah. why he had all these supercomputer powers. It could build a a sci-fi supercomputer from mm-hmm. scratch.
1: You said it earlier on, but there are like... Easy plot points to string together here. There are easy tweaks to yeah. build a story in some of the things that they have here. But it feels like that the Sulkins kind of um their objective is to never engage with a story. That is just something that they are not interested in whatsoever. And they're happy with just the bare minimum, if not below that, yeah. To string a film together. Because there are things that you could do. There are... I mean, like it's even like the weather satellite that they bring into it, as we mentioned. Oh. It's, it's there, it's ready-made, it does the thing already. There's nobody trying to build it or trying to manipulate it. It's, it feels fucking
2: strange. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think I wrote down on my notes, satellites don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, even like
1: talking about the comedy... And uh, that is where their sensibilities, or at least they think their sensibilities, lie anyway. I always have this opinion that when you approach a franchise film like Superman, that has its own inbuilt set of rules that have been established. Like, whenever you build a world, you always build it against rules that you set for that world, so that the audience know what the limitations are. That's why I've never really liked the spinning the world back in time thing. That always feels like it's a break of the rules for that world when people die they should die when you have essentially a world that is built around limitations and rules and that kind of thing it feels weird that we have like comedy beats that include for example richard pryor falling off a high-rise building a skyscraper landing on his feet and then walking it off you know if in this (laughs) world that is something that can happen then superman has no need to save anyone from falling from any high buildings which yeah. is his whole stick <laughs> you know so even in this the comedy serves to completely undercut the film that they're making the superhero film that they're making what's the point of him being there if
2: people survive the things that he saves them from anyway you just you just hit the nail on the head anyway like what's the point of this film <laughs> <laughs> i could have just stopped there yeah
1: <laughs> Full There's stop. no
2: point to this film whatsoever. It doesn't do anything. Yeah, it's so easily skippable because it's not doing anything. Even the fact that Lois Lane comes back at the end it highlights how much of a placeholder this film is. It doesn't advance anything. It doesn't justify its own existence whatsoever.
1: And what is it to deal with Clark Kent and Lois Lane and Lana Lang? Because his whole thing is. Lois Lane is the love of my life. And the previous film really hammered that home. This yeah. was a person he was willing to give up his powers for because he loved so deeply. And in this one, it's like, yeah,
2: I'm going to go back home. Maybe he'd read about the uh, the concept of threesomes and uh, <gasps> and polyamorous relationships. Maybe he'd <laughs> maybe yeah. read that in a magazine in the Daily Planet yeah. and gone, hmm, I like this human behavior. <laughs> Jimmy Olsen told
1: me something about his family being swingers. Yeah. And I thought... <laughs> That's that's the kind of thing. Gee for whiz me. Jimmy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah uh, Gee whiz Jimmy a man can only be so erect <laughs> 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 And it does end with this kind of like knowing look
2: between them. Yeah like this is gonna happen
1: <laughs> 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 It's
2: canon now. We've, yeah. we, we've made it canon <laughs> that's what happened that's why Lana Lange isn't in Superman 4 yeah yeah she took the load yeah
1: <laughs> and it blew her back out
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh no
1: hey we're all thinking it I'm oh. just saying it I'm just a mouthpiece sorry about
2: this I've had a lot of cocaine oh. before recording there's not much to say about this film because there's not much to it really there's no big plot points outside of no bad Superman that's when people talk about this film it's the one with Richard Pryor and where Superman goes bad that's it yes there's nothing else to it and given the landscape of cinema at the time and the budget of this film it's just not where this series needed to be at all such a huge mistake it's just a film that should just never should have been made at all
1: just before we move over to the stats and facts there is one single scene One shining light of a scene in this film, you might call it. The
2: Leaning Tower of Pisa.
1: (laughs) You know what? The Leaning Tower of Pisa gag I actually really quite enjoy. It's like, oh, evil Superman, what's he going to do? He flies over Italy and turns the Leaning Tower of Pisa up,
2: and then he makes it bad again. When (laughs) when is it good, Superman? What a weird thing. Yeah. And the fact that it's outside of the space shot, it's the last shot in the film. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's the plot point they needed to wrap up.
1: Yeah, that was it, yeah. That was what we were all that's what we were all thinking. It's like, where's Dom?
2: What about the new tower (laughs) feasion?
1: But yeah, there is one shining light that we haven't spoken about, and that is the scene in which the green man and red
2: man traffic lights.
1: Oh no. Fight each other.
2: Yeah. That's out of a Zucker, Zucker and Abrams film, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah, Richard Pryor is causing havoc throughout the world. He's making stop signs and green lights and all this go at the same time, so people walk out into the street just in time for the cars to come and that kind of thing. It's, it's chaos in the in the streets. Die Hard Four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> it, it, they really Die Hard for this situation. Yeah, and then we get to we get a close up of the. Green Man and Red Man stop signs and they're both on at the same time and the Green Man climbs up into the Red Man's (laughs) light and they start wrestling. Yeah. I don't even want to comment on it. I just want to let it sit there. And if anything, if this makes the highlight reel, I'm just going to include it and just... I don't want to be the only person to have seen this. Yeah. It explains itself just in terms of where the qualities of this film lie. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so... Going from that point, moving over to the stats and facts. Okay, so Andy, you have some information for us in regards to the critical reception of the film and how audiences have received this film in the years since. So I'm going to hand it over to you. What was the critics' response to this?
2: Yeah, so on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an incredibly uh, not fresh (laughs) (laughs) rating of 29%. That's probably about... 28 percent 30 percent more than it should have yeah and obviously because it's uh it's an old film now it's 40 years old i think this pretty year. much in the month it's actually going to be released so that's yeah. cool as we're reviewing this film for the 40th anniversary we looked for it to be. as it's an older film it's only based on 58 reviews but if it was based on more reviews it'd probably be lower yeah and the average score of that is 4.5 out of 10 Which, given it's Rotten Tomatoes, is actually quite low. Yeah. And its consensus is, we're not overusing sight gags, slapstick, and Richard Pryor. Superman 3 resorts to plot points rehashed from previous Superman flicks. (laughs) That's a pretty damn
1: consensus. It seems like it's building up to a... uh, But it does this thing, right? Instead, it's like, we're not doing all of these terrible things. It actually does more terrible things.
2: Yeah. And the Onion score is 23% so this doesn't even have any nostalgia from the audience either uh, no. that's based on hundred thousand plus ratings they give it 2.6 out of 5 which again is not particularly great on um rotten tomatoes the IMDB score is 5 out of 10 which to contrast it i think superman 2 is 6.7 out of 10 and superman 4 is 3.7 out of 10 so probably yeah. maybe still higher than it should be it maybe should be in the um Superman 4 territory.
1: It should for sure, yeah. I think it's just the sense that it has a budget that has put this uh, a cut above.
2: Like I think with the Salkinds as well, it's just about the all-star spectacle, the gags, Mm -hmm. and nothing else. Yeah. So the review this week comes from Roger Ebert, as usual, and he says, Superman gets zapped with some erstas kryptonite and turns into a meanie, which is good for some laughs, as a practical joke, he straightens the Leaning Tower of Pisa. All of this is sort of fun. And the special sort of fun. <laughs> and the sort special of. Efe- yeah. yeah. <laughs> sort of. And the special effects are sometimes very good. But there's no real sense of wonder in this film. No moments like the scene in the first Superman, where California threatened to fall into the sea, and Superman turned back time to save humanity. After that, who cares about Robert Vaughan's satellites or Richard <laughs> Pryor's dilemma? Pryor can be a wicked anarchic comic actor, and that presence would have been welcomed here. Instead, like the rest of Superman 3, he's kind of innocuous. And given that review, you would expect a much lower score, but bizarrely, Roger Ebert gave it 2.5 out of 4, yes. which I do not understand. It's a weird one. It sounded um, like I... a, a 1 out of 4.
1: Yeah, it does. I read the review earlier as well, and there are some moments that he thinks are, oh, again, I use this sort of fun. Kind sort of fun. Of, kind <laughs> of. If you look at it from this way, it looks kind of like a movie, <laughs> but it does sound like a review that's at odds with its overall score.
2: Yeah. Maybe got some money from Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Maybe they uh, they had a buffet, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> but yeah, it's just uh, despite Ebert's review, which might have been one of those slightly in denial reviews because maybe you liked the other Superman films, you know? Because we've had that in the past where we've had like it was kind of good. Uh, was, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I remember we had that with Spectre, didn't we? So it's was good, yeah. and then like yeah. a day or two later, I was like, nah, nah, it wasn't good. So maybe it's one of those film reviews that he's maybe gone back to and looked at and gone, yeah, I kind of gave that bit too much of a free pass.
1: Yeah, there are some films that you want to be better than they are. Like, yeah. you're desperate for them to be. And I've had that moment with films in the past, for sure. I had it with Spectre. Kingdom in the Crystal Skulls is another one. Yeah, Where I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a 7 out of 10 indie film. You know, it does this and this and this wrong, and that and that and that wrong, and this and this and this wrong. But, <laughs> you know... But it's all right.
2: It's an Indiana Jones film. <laughs> it can't in get theory. any worse. Uh, <laughs> we shall see. We will see.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so moving over to the box office result for this film. So we've mentioned previously that it did have a $39 million budget. You said that adjusted for inflation, that's more in the around the $100 million mark. I think
2: about $123 million. There we go, yeah, so it's a, a much higher budget when you really look at it through those lenses. But it's a lower budget than the previous two films because they were like 55, 54 million each. Wow. So maybe I think a lot of that had been on like R&D and getting the special mm-hmm. effects sorted out and probably the big salaries for Brando and Hackman as well, I imagine, was rolled into that. Yeah. Because really the only big name in this film is Richard Pryor. and I imagine he got the biggest payday in this film.
1: Of course he did, yeah. And yes, yeah, so the box office for this film was it made thirteen million on the opening weekend in America, uh, and the domestic overall gross was fifty nine million dollars. And it says that the worldwide total for this film was around eighty million. But I do think that those numbers are rather incomplete because I'm just going from Wikipedia with that. It possibly did a little bit more money. Now. In regards to the its opening weekend, its domestic opening weekend, so this is in America, Superman 3 did open to the number one spot. As I mentioned, it made $13 million. Just to give that some context, though, Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, was in the number two spot with $11 million, so just only $2 million below. And that was in its fourth weekend of release. As we mentioned, this film opened in the middle of summer, June seventeenth, nineteen eighty-three. Even Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, in its fourth week of release, nearly matches Superman Three in terms of what it made that weekend. Other films that are included in that top ten: we have uh, Trading Places at number three, Octopussy at number four, War Games at number five, Psycho Two at number six, Flashdance at number seven, Blue Thunder at number eight. The Man With Two Brains at number nine, which looking at that is kind of a flop, despite the fact that it's one of my favorite Steve Martin films. And at number 10, we have The Behemoth, that is Tootsie, with uh, just around $730,000, but it was in its 27th week of release and had made over $170 million at that point, nearly $175 million. So Tootsie really was, like, one of the biggest films of that year. And then there's Superman 3. (laughs) So, yeah, that's where we're at with that top ten. I will say, looking at that, that is a packed-out top ten. Yeah. There are films in there that still get play now. There are um, cult-following films like Psycho 2 that actually were bigger hits than I thought they were back in the day. Like, Psycho 2, at that point, had been out for three weeks and it made $22 million, which was about on par with war games that had been out for the same amount of time. (laughs) So very packed weekend this. So I'm actually surprised that Superman 3 went on to make $60 million in America. I would have thought it would have faded away against some of the films in there. Because we even have other comedies like Trading Places that do the whole shtick that this film has better.
2: Yeah. Even if the box office is slightly incomplete, the massive drop-off from the first Superman film, which I think in today's money, you're probably talking about $1.5 1.5 billion, yeah, yeah, versus probably about 300 million for yeah. Man three. I mean, you got to tweak it because things were different back then, anyway. Even if you take inflation out of the uh, equation, but it can't be understated how little money this actually made in comparison. Still, probably made more than quite a lot of modern superhero films did given their budgets and marketing and all that kind of stuff. But even so, at the time, it was, wasn't was a flop, but it was definitely a huge disappointment. And they obviously thought, oh, we'll give it one last run around with Supergirl, and I think that did even worse. So yeah, that's just as bad anyway, if not worse of a film.
1: Yeah, I mean, it has all of the faults of this film plus more
2: plus less budget <laughs> that actually lost money because that was made for 35 million dollars and only raked in oh, wow. 14.3 worldwide
1: so when i say it's made for less it's not even made for that much less it just no. looks so much worse it's strange how these films follow the jaws principle in that as the years go by and they make more films the technology in theory gets better and yet the special effects for the films look far far worse yeah And this is very much the case with these films as well. They don't know how to spend their money wisely, and they put the money in
2: all of the wrong things, in all of the wrong places. Yeah, but I think it's still a testament, the fact that the first Superman film still has the best critical reception, and box office-wise adjusted for inflation. Easily best, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Justice League. Yeah. They're not even coming close. They're coming to, like, less than half of what the original Superman made, and... I think people can't quite quantify. It's doing Avengers numbers. That's what you can compare it to in terms of superhero movies. The original Superman was Avengers level of yeah. money. This is such a shadow for myself. And it's crazy just how quickly it declined. It really is just bonkers how they mishandled this series, given how mm-hmm. great a start it had. It's just unthinkable that they would fire the director that gave them a a film that, in 1978, made them $300 million worldwide.
1: Yeah, I've never seen people be more begrudging about the fact that somebody made them an enormous amount of money.
2: Yeah, absolutely bonkers.
1: The egos at play here, and I think they deserve... Every amount of criticism and loss of money. Uh, I don't know yeah. if they went into bankruptcy or anything like that, but they deserve it because of how they've mismanaged this property. Absolutely. And it's never really found stable hands ever since. I think you can trace that all the way back to them.
2: Yeah. And it's the fact that it's Superman and even now people are thinking, I think even when Mana Steel came out, they regarded Superman as a, a risky prospect. Mm. It's Superman. It's one of the most well-known superheroes of all time if you do it right it should work and it should bring in the money and the accolades and the audience it should bring it in if you do it right yeah
1: and if anything i think marvel has shown that you can do it with this character as they have done it with captain america yeah one of the strongest characters in their roster he is essentially the Marvel version of Superman and not in terms of like his strength he is a very strong character but he's a lot more fallible than Superman is but he has the same attitude that boy scout type of attitude that attitude of no matter how hard you hit if it's for the greater good I will always stand up to face you and this film even like touches upon that when evil Superman faces good Superman no matter what Evil Superman throws at Clark Kent, he still gets back on his feet. Even if he throws him into a vat of acid in a junkyard, which I never knew that junkyards had a random vat of acid. That's a oh, that's yeah, to me.
2: standard, standard practice. Standard, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, but yeah, it has that moment where he just keeps getting back up and keeps getting back up, no matter the punishment that's thrown his way. Yeah, and then strangles him out of existence. Even with that, they could have done something where it's through the goodness of good Superman that he manages to best his evil counterpart and it's like, oh no, no, no. He just strangles him with both hands and he disappears. <laughs> I don't I don't get it. there's nothing clever in that. But yeah, it kind of comes to that head. But you can do that and Marvel has shown that you can make this work on some level. And it's kind of become a Thorn and Warner Brothers side, a point of embarrassment that they can't seem to get Superman to work for them for one reason or another. So yeah, I mean, as to whether I would recommend this film, it's a hard (laughs) no. I would actually like recommend, even though I think I said I would recommend watching The Quest for Peace for all of its faults, it's still a so bad it's good movie. I definitely... It's still a Superman movie. Exactly. It's a so bad it's good Superman movie. This isn't a Superman movie. No. This isn't a bad Superman movie. It's a bad Richard Pryor movie. Yeah. It's a bad Salkins movie. And I would say, yeah, just completely disregard it. It's just not worth the time of day. No. Okay, and that's all we have time for on the latest episode of our show. Join us next time as we'll be swapping faces for Mission Impossible 2, the John (laughs) Woo classic. It's uh,
2: something to look forward to there, Andy. Yeah. but until then i've been gareth and i'm just gonna uh, drink some of granny's peach tea <laughs> i've heard that tastes a lot like piss it's funny you say that <laughs> <laughs> and
1: thanks for listening